You're listening to the second of a three-part interview with Ronald Neeson for Childhood History and Critique. Part three can be found on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth. I think it's the South African TRCs following uh, apartheid are uh, uh, the model for many of us. Right. I know there are many other TRCs, but for just the educated public, that's what we think of. And right. we think of the naming, and we also think of the way reconciliation and truth are are defined in terms of white police officers right. being in a room with uh, the black South African victims who they have hurt and right. being present and having to listen exactly. to them yes, and having to listen to them with everyone else listening in the world yes, at the same time. And that is, it's hard to forget that. Yes. It's so powerful. It is. Th yet that element is not here. It's because not. Because the priests and nuns, to a large extent, unless they voluntarily go, collectively there's a division between that group and the TRC. Yes, that was a, that was one of the aspects of the structure of the TRC that was that really stood out to me, particularly when I interviewed the priests, brothers, and nuns who ran the schools. There was this, there was this huge disjuncture, disparity between the understanding of the lived experience of the schools from the point of view of the people who ran them every day, not not the archbishops and bishops who came to give apologies, but the people who the ran the brothers and the sisters, the brothers, the sisters, um, the priests who were there in the schools um, were not coming to give testimony. They were disaffected with the process. Now, I, you know, in saying that they're absent, I don't want to be misunderstood that I'm wanting to substitute their voice, their voice for the survivors. Yes. That it is, you know, we're not, we're not suggesting, I wouldn't suggest for a moment that um, there's no responsibility uh, on the part of these people who are absent from the commission, but as as you point out, the kind of the kind of uh, discomfort of co the confrontation of the beliefs, the questioning of their fundamental assumptions, was not something that happened in a public forum. So the parties were not all present. Yeah. And another absence that was notable to me was the absence of the federal government. Yeah. There's, there's a case of Blackwater v. Plint that went to the Supreme Court that found the federal government, um, and you know how uh, law loves numbers, right? Yeah. So the number is that the federal government was 75% responsible for the schools and the church is 25%. So yeah. we, can, we can laugh at that uh, sort of numerical situation, <laughs> yeah, the absurdity of that, and yet... It points to something very real, that the federal government had a primary responsibility for the schools. And yet, what was its participation in the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission? It, and these aspects of process, let me present something to you as a, as a reader about what I was thinking when you explained and unfolded this and helped me order some of my thoughts and misgivings. 
Right. There are two things in what you've done when you have uh, very compellingly described the traumatic experiences of many children and then interviews with the priests and you that you have them both in the books. Right. Doing something in the book, the TRC itself, prevents by its structure. Right. And then you also provide uh, provide some just incredibly accessible commentary of how the state uh, experienced the least possible collateral damage. That, that was my underst- That would be my interpretation. A- a- of absolutely. But there are two things. There are two huge things that, as a historian of childhood and the state, that come from my reading of these types of assimilation projects. One, the basic assumptions about learning and about childhood and about ethnos that the priests would have brown to this. Foundational understandings of learning in childhood and the socialization and assimilation of children are absolutely not up for grabs by the TRC. Right. And to me, that's the nub of the question, generational relations. The other thing that's not up for grabs is the way the modern state defines itself very much in terms of a biopolitical regime that rests on the notion of governing populations by being able to control the socialization of children. Yeah, that didn't enter into... It can't enter into this thing because you're not bringing together the teachers and the children or the victims as adults. It's also not being seen as a transitional justice process, which would be a TRC. There's no change of regime that's at the heart of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Which is another one of the fundamental differences that you point out, is right. that we haven't had a war and the collapse of a state, or and, a real- and rebuilding the state, and reflecting on what the Canadian state and other states right. are about. So the state is there wanting to Using the TRC itself. to fend off reconstruction. Right, in a, in a sense, or to minimize... Minimize the damage. Hmm. I think this is why truth and indignation should be read, that it opens up a space for this kind of critical conversation. But it's also what I'm afraid will be misunderstood. And here's why. Okay, I'm interested to hear this. Well, I'm concerned that your critical edge will be misunderstood because people will read from it that somehow you're an apologist for something like the residential school. Yeah, and that's or that they'll read it and they'll think that you're doubting the Sorry. truth yeah. of what um, the former students are saying. Right. Looking at the TRC um, and how it how it constructed the truth involves looking at how it shapes the survivor testimony, and 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 that's uh, an important part of the commission and its work that was undeniable. Yeah. Um, and and that can be misunderstood as questioning the reality of reality of abuse of what the students went through and the suffering that they went through. But um, I'm I was aware from the beginning of that uh, of that issue, and indeed that's been the focal point of some of the criticism of the work yeah. that that I've uh, that I've heard and heard in person when I, as I presented as I presented this uh, this book in a variety of venues since it's appeared. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's the that's the cost of doing something that um, I think takes the 
takes the phenomenon out of the usual context and looks at it from a different point of view. It's, it's sure to be, it's sure to be misunderstood by some. Um, but in, in that process of misunderstanding, maybe there is going to be, uh, another insight that emerges, uh, perhaps looking again at the, at the way history is, con- is, is made, uh, is made over, over the long term and that, the success of the commission, I think, is one of the things that's surprised me about it since since the book came out, that it ha- actually has managed uh, to a large degree to to communicate its central core ideas. Yeah. There is a there's a base of let's call it what it is, racism in Canadian society that's yeah. visible in some of the threads and newspaper stories and so on. Um, on the commission and on the aftermath and on the notion of uh, cultural genocide in particular. Yeah. Um, but still, uh, it's managed to influence opinion to the point that that racism comes out. Yeah. That that the ter- the terms of the discussion, if you want to call it that, are are there. That it's really shaped opinion. And Canada isn't alone uh, in these stories. This is, I guess, one of the things that I'm disappointed is the connection to the larger set of generational relations, right? relations to the state, aren't, are difficult to get to in the way that this history has been constructed. All institutions of these varieties produce these phenomena. The epitome of the powerless with the people who have the uncontrolled power over them through the way that institution is constructed. Exactly. It's been a disaster again and again. We we had uh, in the Montreal uh, Commission hearings, we had people from the Duplessis orphans and notorious uh, orphanages in, in Quebec that yeah. fostered similar conditions of sexual abuse and so on. The difference with the residential schools is that the residential schools were oriented towards deculturation, assimilation of these yeah. people. Yeah. And that added another element of uh, um, contempt for for these powerless children as carriers of a maligned culture that that they were there to to change. And that and that, but it, it adds a lo- element of contempt, but one that is also, from my point of view, not been talked about with enough breath. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Historians have been writing about schools and these kinds of school projects for a long time. And the ideas of integration, which are also imbued with liberationary themes of transformation, of accessibility, of opportunity. I mean, one of the lines in your book in a few short decades, a complete transformation took place in the moral outlook toward a national policy in Canada. Now, here you're writing about the residential school policies. Mm-hmm. So in 30 years, right. transformation takes place. But in the 40s and 50s and before, the specific moral outlook would have been schools like this provide access to English and French literacy to personal discipline which allows you to conduct yourself appropriately in a free society yes to piety and knowledge of the moral truth through religion right. these things of course can be criticized there's right. another side to all of these things <laughs> right of to, course to security and good health yes 
And those were the primary arguments of the mid-20th century progressive. Of course, the other side of those things is assimilation and language loss. Right. Tr- the trauma of disciplinary institutions. Yes. Not piety, but corruption. And not security, but violence. Yes. And all of the, I guess what I would say is that there's, there is in fact, and from my point of view, not one truth to those dichotomies, to the, to school processes. The devil is in the details. Mm-hmm. And particularly since literacy, discipline, piety, and security are still important parts of how, how we raise children, examining the way more than just these institutions, but many institutions in generational relations result in assimilation, trauma, corruption, and violence. Mm-hmm. That To not see that there's a general frame here that's difficult and right. to really problematize it. In other words, if you can just demonize the assimilators, you don't have to confront the way that these ideals have survived. I guess that's and the way they manifest themselves in other institutions. A- absolutely. Yes. And in our own relationships to our own children. Right. And to our own students. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, one so, way to understand education is that it's the transformation of the soul. Sure. And that's an old idea, and we are not beyond it. I guess that's my point. Right. Of course. I mean, these were essential concerns of Foucault and his idea of of uh, the technology of the self. A- absolutely. Um, and. I think that what you're what you're saying takes a point that I make in the book and I think takes takes it even further than I did in the book. Yes. Um so I, I was looking at the at the way the mandate of the commission w- was restricted, right? So it's restricted in the kinds of schools that are defined as residential. Absolutely. Something one hundreds of the, are defined out hundreds of the process. Out. If it was the, the same kind of school, but run by the provinces. It wasn't ex- yes. excluded. If it had Métis students who didn't have a status card, it was excluded. If it was non-residential, right, it was excluded. A day school. Ex- so there are fourteen hundred institutions that are claimed by uh, Aboriginal people as being residential schools. That points to the range of institutions that were seen as being assimilative and having the same kind of experience. So this this means that people said, oh, I was subject to that kind of discipline in this convent or or that TB ward or whatever it was. That was a residential school. And they make a claim to having that included. And, of course, it's rejected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so 1,400 institutions are are rejected. And, and, and to me, the, the what's extremely important about the exclusion is the exclusion functions as an insulator to a far larger problem. Right. And so that's the problem of exactly. generational relations, generational violence, right. and relationships between care and control. And it's an, a proper understanding of the scope of these ideas at the time that they occurred and the kinds of institutions in which they were built in. The, the, the focus on residential schools, on federal Indian residential schools, narrows our understanding of the phenomenon considerably. Yes. Um, 
and its understanding and the and the emphasis i would argue on the worst abuses in those schools masks the manifestation of these foundational ideas in other institutions including contemporary institutions that have the same kind of pedagogical goals of ideas of self-improvement protection safety security uplifting yes uh all inherited from these these ideals of the 1940s and 50s but manifested in 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 different form yeah um it makes them unrecognizable it puts a a point final to the history of the schools with their closure in the 1990s it takes one of the graphic examples the most graphic hard wrenching examples that you could find right the failure of our highest ideals and their interior prob- problems that are interior to their very logic and it puts them in a ghetto and insulates them from manifestations that are more ordinary right yeah no, and, and that's that's a that's an issue if your main point is to is to confront the violence the violence in generational relations yes i think so now to to give the uh, aboriginal activists and the trc some credit Absolutely. they do make they do make links yeah. to things like welfare policy as continuation of assimilation policy and this is this these kinds of institutions are addressed in their call to action so they're taking a broad approach to the response to the findings of the commission but uh and there is a big but here i think that the the effectiveness of the commission in the way it did its work and the structure of it and the way it was defined and the way residential schools was was were defined still makes the public history the understanding of the history of the state focus on these institutions as the source of these uh ideas of pedagogy self improvement uplifting whereas they were much more broad based and have and and much more durable yeah. uh, than would be assumed by looking at that history in the way it is framed this concludes the second of a three part interview with ronald neeson on childhood history and critique recorded february 2016 the final installment can be found on the Society for the History of Children and Youths website.